Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Fortress Information Security. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. And joining me now is Dr. Jim Lewis, the Director of the Strategic Technologies Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Last week, Jim hosted a fascinating conversation on the future of quantum computing, uh, with the focus being the Biden administration's new quantum computing and technology strategy. Uh, that uh, was discussed with Jonah Force Hill, uh, the Director of Cybersecurity and Emerging Technology Policy at the National Security Council, and Charles Tahan, the Assistant Director for Quantum Information Science and the Director of the National Quantum Coordination Office at the Office of Science and Technology Policy at the White House. Boy, that's a mouthful. Uh, Jim, thanks very much for joining us, and it's always a pleasure having you on the program. Thank you. And before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. As you know, Jim, I'm a giant client quantum computing uh, fan. And, and really one of the best events I've ever attended was your discussion with Google's uh, Hartmut Nevin, uh, the guy who led the quantum supremacy team at, at Google. Right. It was just, as the pan- just before the pandemic washed over us, in which he called for a national quantum computing strategy with some urgency. Um, this administration has now rolled out the National Security Memorandum 10 or NSM 10 uh, on quantum uh, and has made a series of other moves. And, and, and some of these were introduced in the first time the administration discussed them in detail was uh, with with for, uh, with Hill and Tahan at your at your event. What are the moves the administration has meant, and what do they mean, and how important are they? Well, they uh, took the request for a national strategy to heart. We now have a very well organized uh, national program. There's actually two documents. There's an executive order on uh, quantum information services and quantum technology and the National Security Memorandum. And so what you've seen is an emphasis on research, uh, reinforcement of the desire to make quantum-proof cryptography, the creation of an advisory board of scientific advisors. So the administration has done uh, a fair amount of work to regularize and to give quantum the priority it needs. What were some of the key messages that Jonah and Charles were passing along to the audience from your standpoint? So I was at a briefing, I, I might have said this on the, the, at the event, a briefing where somebody said the US is lagging behind China and that's not true. So they confirmed that uh, we're not lagging behind. It depends how you count. If you're looking at federal investment in quantum, yes, the Chinese outspend us. If you're looking at American investment in quantum research, we outspend China uh, multiple times because the leaders here are the private sector and the research in the private sector is what's giving us our advantage. So one thing they said is, look, the US is not behind in quantum. The US is actually ahead in quantum. The Chinese are powerful competitors and there's some areas like quantum communications where they've actually done uh, pretty well. But um, I think that was an important message Uh, The second part was having recognized the importance of the private sector. Uh, It was a good effort to organize in the NSM and the EO to organize the research community, the private companies working on quantum and the federal enterprise. So um, a fairly good strategy for moving ahead. The third part of course is uh, quantum, post-quantum cryptography. And we can talk about that. Because I wanna get to the organizing 
functions of this uh, in, in a minute. But from uh, the standpoint, you know, there are a myriad of applications, obviously, for the technology. And right now, it is cumbersome and complicated, and you have to get to, you know, absolute zero. And there's a whole bunch of challenges, right? You have to get to super cooling uh, in, in order to be able to, to do this. And it's, you know, it, it's, it, it's not a linear computer, right? So it operates in sort of a scattershot fashion and there's statistics and what have you in this, right? And it sort of gives you like, I think the answer is, uh, but it processes and moves so quickly that you actually can, can get to an answer. But if you have quantum uh, encryption, you can decrypt pretty much anybody who doesn't have it. And if you have it, nobody else can decrypt you, right? And so the way Hartmut explained this is that this is like aliens going up against cavemen if you, if you have the technology. Ultimately, what does it mean? And what are the things, uh, Jim, that we have to be doing now to prepare for this quantum future? I know the National Security Agency and other government bodies have sort of been working on this, but, but what does it mean and how do we need to organize ourselves? Because, right, those keys go to everybody. And so how do we need to think about this cryptological future, if you will? And I think one of the intentions of putting out the EO and the NSM was to uh, tell the private sector, uh, this is closer than you may think. This is something we need to start working on now. So um, quantum, it's probably uh, at least the end of the decade before we see truly practical applications, but that's sooner than you might think. The good news is that um, NIST has a post-quantum cryptography project. They're working on, uh, I think, a contest where people submit possible encryption, um, post-quantum encryption uh, models. Um, NSA has been working on it. So we, we actually are doing okay. The dilemma here is, as you all know, um, Intelligence agencies like are like squirrels. They like to collect a lot of things. And so they, we can probably assume that the Chinese are recording all of our traffic uh, as much as they can get access to and saving it for the day when they have quantum computing capabilities. Now, that doesn't mean that there's an immediate benefit there because if, if you record something in 2000 and, uh, 22, but you can't read it until 2030. There may not be that much value, but they're working hard on uh, developing quantum capabilities to break encryption. We're working hard on quantum capabilities to break encryption, but we also have probably the world's leading program to come up with post-quantum cryptography. So um, it's something that they wanted to call the attention of the private sector to is you, you need to have in place your own, for your company, uh, your own post-quantum strategy on how you'll deal with this big change. About the ecosystem, right? I mean, how do we, for, for us to succeed in this, as you said, right, we're spending uh, more money, but not doing it in as focused perhaps a way as the Chinese are. We're now adding the leadership element, as, as Hartmut uh, has pointed out, right? He went to the same Austrian PhD program as the head of the Chinese program. So the, the, the savoir-faire, as it were, uh, were is, is already, the know-how is already out there. Um, you know, what are, what are the ways, you know, I mean, and, and you're a cold warrior of the first order, and I mean that as a compliment, Jim, right? Um, you know, how do we organize this effort nationally for, for it to result, you know, in that public-private partnership model that, that results in the greatest bang for us 
um, you know, ultimately. Well, I th again, that's where the, this administration deserves some credit. They've set up a national quantum coordination office and they have a committee now that um, is a collection of leading scientists, the National Quantum Initiative Advisory Committee. Uh, we, we are getting our act together. I know we, we, there's a tendency to overstate how far the Chinese have come along. They're good in some areas, but overall we're, we're ahead. We can't rest on our laurels. I mean, that's one of the things we've heard repeatedly is, you know, this, it's not like anyone else is going to slow down, but we are, as a result of the EO and the NSM, better organized than we were. And remember a key difference between the US and China is um, we need to think of ways to um, organize private sector efforts because that's where the action is. This isn't uh, a 1970s DARPA project. Uh, this is a new style of uh, industrial policy, a new style of research. And what's the key to getting it right then from your standpoint, having studied what are successful models and what are unsuccessful models in order to be able to do this? The, the key is to um, keep people focused, to keep people working. The, the private sector companies really don't need that much to, uh, to uh, get them focused on this because one, it's a, it's a, it's a prestige thing to, uh, they think it will solve a lot of their problems. One of the things I think is interesting is the idea of quantum as a service, right? Which is that you don't have a quantum computer, but you're able to access it over the internet through the cloud uh, and do quantum computing. You know, even though the actual processor might be located a uh, hundred miles away. So we've, we've got a uh, pretty robust uh, research initiative here. And part of it will be identifying where the places there are that are of national security interest beyond cryptography. Uh, cryptography is pretty well under control. Maybe could use a little more money in this, but we're doing okay. Um, but there are other areas is sensing prediction. Um, and the next thing is how does this quantum capability improve um, our own uh, research and development capabilities. It's a, it's a new kind of computing. Third one, and this is probably one that needs a little more work, workforce. This is a different kind of computing. It's a different kind of code. So we might want to pay a little more attention to how we build the quantum computing, the quantum research workforce. Um, let me ask you uh, quickly about um, I want to get to allies and partners and, and workforce, but you know, you mentioned quantum sensing. Um, right now, stealth, we, we have stealth, for example, whether it's submarines or uh, aerial stealth, in part because the computational factors are too complicated, right? But a submarine is still a very large body. It's traveling under the water and the surface of the ocean rises, for example, as that body moves through the water. If you have enough computing power and you can look at that distortion, you can tell what might be where, for example, right, was one of the arguments, um, one of the points that Hartman said. How do, how do we need to be thinking about the perishability of some of our fundamental military advantages, Jim, if well, we, you're in, yeah. in, in a different, yeah. entirely different ballgame computationally? And, and we needed to be thinking about that even before all the attention to quantum. I had a... Uh, uh, four-star, uh, a flag officer basically tell me um, uh, two years ago 
that uh, stealth uh, has a finite life. We can say when stealth will no longer be um, as powerful a tool as it once was. And that is within, within a few years. A few years being maybe the early 2030s when stealth won't work as well as it did. So quantum accelerates a trend that was already there. People, we've had stealth around for what now? It's been um, more than 30 years. Uh, our opponents know the benefit it gives us and they've been working hard to find ways to defeat stealth. Quantum will accelerate their efforts. And in this, we mainly need to look at the Chinese. So the post-stealth world is one that we'll need to think about. Uh, not here, not next week, not next year, but certainly uh, in the 2030s. Um, I, you know, I think that we should give the audience a moment to think about the profound nature of this and how many hundreds of billions of dollars we have invested in some of these technologies that we've looked at sort of enduring um, American strategic advantages uh, that, that could evaporate a lot more quickly, even as quantum right opens new doors for us in terms of the competitive dynamic. And, but this is the nature of warfare. Uh, everyone builds battleships. They spend uh, the equivalent of billions of dollars building battleships uh, because that was the strategy at the turn of the 19th century. And by the 1940s, it was clear that battleships weren't as valuable uh, as they might have once been. And in fact, maybe you didn't need battleships at all, right? We're kind of seeing that with tanks and unmanned aerial vehicles and precision guided munitions. Um, military technology changes, quantum will accelerate that. And so it's not just how do we take advantage of quantum computing to uh, identify targets that our opponents are operating. It's how do we take advantage of quantum computing's uh, improvements in research to come up with whatever the next generation of military advantages. What, what, are, what are the opportunities that it opens from your standpoint, or is that not yet abundantly clear? It's not Be, clear. Beyond the cryptography and you know, the sensing and what have you. The benefits it opens up are not yet clear because uh, it's still a relatively scarce commodity, uh, the ability to get access to quantum computing. And of course, there's a whole classified set of uh, activities that, that have so far, amazingly in Washington, um, been, have remained pretty classified. So I think that's, that's what we need to see is if, if this accelerates research and in combination with say artificial intelligence and cloud computing and some of the other emerging technologies we see, um, we don't know what that research will bring us just as in the 1960s, people didn't envision stealth somebody eventually said, what if we found some way to do this? So we don't know what they'll be. We just know it'll come to us faster than we would have seen in the past. Um, and I want to point out, right, I mean, one of the things that um, um, Google was discussing then was quantum as a service uh, and uh, to be able to sort of start to roll that out. But they haven't rolled that out yet, have they? Because um, he was talking about their sort of countdown to that. And I've sort of lost track of the, of the calendar. I mean, have they where, 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 what is the state of the art, right, since Google achieved quantum supremacy in 2019, uh, if I recall? Um, and that's basically being able to solve a problem that would take a linear computer like 10,000 years to solve and being able to do it in, I don't know, 300 seconds or whatever it is. Um, you know, has, 
Is that verified at this point? And is there anybody else who's even achieved the same thing? I can't believe I've lost uh, track track of this, but this is the uh, pandemic uh, flattening of horizons, Jim. <laughs> well, there, there is, of course, some dispute about the claim to quantum supremacy. Uh, there's a few companies that are doing quite a lot of work. Google is one of them. Uh, IBM is another, and IBM does offer uh, quantum as a service uh, that uh, if you're a legitimate researcher, um, you can access uh, their quantum computing capabilities through the cloud. I think Germany, for example, has a quantum program, but it's based on accessing quantum as a service. So Google's a world leader, IBM's a world leader. Um, they, the U.S. is lucky in that we've got them uh, both working on this. Uh, some of the other companies we know about, uh, some of the aerospace companies are using quantum for research. Uh, some of the big chip companies are developing quantum projects, sometimes in cooperation with Google or with IBM. So there's, there's a lot going on um, because one of the things that's changed is the internet means you don't need to have physical proximity. Uh, the speed of the ability to connect means you don't have to be in the same room as the processor. You can be distant and still get access to it. Now, I've looked at some of this, and I'll tell you, it's a different style of coding. It's much harder. Uh, and we will need to develop new skills, uh, new people with the coding skills you need for quantum. But the research opportunities are such, I think that will happen. It's an area where federal funding can accelerate things, but people will want to get access to these uh, research tools. Um, let me, um, I want to uh, follow up on that. But uh, so, I mean, are we definitively now in a quantum age or are we on the cusp of the quantum age, right? I mean, because if I, if I hear you correctly, we have a claim of quantum supremacy that is contested. Um, I can understand why it's contested, and I can also understand from Google's standpoint why they achieved it. Um, or are we in this sort of transitional period? Because, right, I mean, there are also big oper operationalizing challenges of this, right? I mean, you have to keep this stuff cold. The programming of it is very bulky and complicated, um, right? I mean, so are we, are we fully in a quantum world at this point? Not or really. Sort of? uh, yeah. One way to think about it is... Uh... You saw the first uh, nuclear detonation in 1945, but the research behind that was at least 20 years earlier, and some would argue even further back. So we're we're at the sort of run up to a quantum phase. Now it's faster than it was in the last century. The development, the research, uh, is faster. With pace has increased, but we're still in the run up, uh, closer and moving quickly, but. You know, when you look for practical applications, it's still very much a research activity. Uh, and we are some years out, uh, a good number of years out from actual deployment. For the audience, explain the talent challenge, right? And the programming challenge. What is, what's it like to uh, program a quantum computer? What's it like, you know, and how does that compare with uh, programming a, a classical linear computer? Well, quantum physics is, is, is so different from the physics that we all learned in high school that uh, you really need a whole different set of studies. Uh, right now, because it is still new, still a research activity, um, 
it's really the leading scientists, the leading physicists, uh, material scientists and mathematicians. So um, one of the goals is to move it from being a high-end research activity to something that's uh, a little more uh, applicable on a daily basis. Um, I, I, uh, I, I just, uh, you know, as a fan of anything quantum, I suggest people go to the internet uh, and, and try to learn them. And even Feynman's lectures and a number of other things people will find uh, utterly, uh, utterly fascinating. Um, what's the role of our allies and partners in this, uh, Jim? Because, you know, you mentioned the nuclear age. It was the British tube alloys program uh, that uh, came to the United States where Britain had started nuclear research uh, under uh, MAUD came to the United States, became the Los Alamos project. We developed the bomb and then sadly we, we pushed our British allies and partners out of that program to maintain a monopoly on the technology. Um, how do we need to look at this? Because there are brilliant British, French, German, Austrian scientists that are from allied and partnered nations. Should we, how should we be thinking about this and bringing our friends uh, and allies into it? So one of the things that came out of the uh, Technology and Trade Council meeting last week in France was that, you know, in these emerging technologies like quantum, we have an advantage over the Chinese in that we do have allies with powerful research communities. I would have put Canada on your list as well. And so a goal is to find ways to work with allies in developing quantum technologies for practical use. And that's something I think that it's been identified as a goal last week. I'm pretty sure we'll make good progress on it. And do you think that this is something that lawmakers fully appreciate and understand as well? So I asked, uh, I asked that to the people from the White House, and they said, actually, Congress has done a good job at supporting them. So this is a, a success story for the United States. Uh, any, um, and, and one last uh, question, and I just uh, recalled what it was. Any policy pitfall challenge that you see out there that's an impediment, right? Do we have, whether it's a legal impediment, organizational impediment that you think uh, we need to be cognizant of and sort of knock out of the way if we want to get there from here? The, the impediments that I have seen and heard of are largely the risk of uh, over-controlling. And so companies worry that the, their work will be declared ammunition and subject to ITAR controls, cutting them off from the global market. Uh, scientists worry that we'll say that the uh, basic researchers they're engaged in is classified, cutting them off from global collaboration. So I think the biggest risk here is that we choke and try and control this. Uh, an open approach to quantum has served us well and we need to reinforce it. Jim, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for spending so much time with us. Really appreciate it and keep up the great work. <laughs> Thank you. Talk to you soon.